Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In my dreams, I hear again the crash of guns, the rattle of musketry, and the strange, mournful mutter of the battlefield. Douglas MacArthur Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fell special on World War I, episode 20.3, 1906-1913. If you are wondering why there was a bit more of a gap between this and the last episode, then it's for a very good reason. In case you weren't up to date with my business, I recently did a presentation in the Wicklow Rotary Club on podcasting, podcasts, and of course, When Diplomacy Fails. I'd like to think it went well, and it was great to take one of the first steps towards what will hopefully become a steady rate of expansion for the podcast. All I can do is thank all of them for the opportunity, and thank listener Seamus especially one last time for making it all possible, and for that coffee. Thanks bud, the whole thing meant a lot to me and really was flattering. Sometimes I tend to go on too long in these intros, so I won't waste your time by rambling, but I would like to say a big thanks to Ben, Martin and Seamus for their donations. Since this is the first time I've ever been able to send out thanks for two, let alone three donations in one episode, it is something of a special occasion, and it is really encouraging to know that people out there love this enough to send their hard-earned dough my way. So thanks so much. I mean it sincerely, guys. Okay, with that small amount of housekeeping out of the way, I'm sure you're pretty ready to get into the meat and veg of this episode, so let's get going. I will now take you to the year 1906. Changed utterly was the only adequate way to describe the situation in Europe in 1906. The isolation France had seen since 1871 had ended after she had sided with Russia, while Germany had alienated Russia, thus encouraging Russia to side with France, after over two decades of alliances and diplomatic moves towards an understanding. With France and Russia on one side and Germany on the other, Germany had tied itself even closer to Austria, giving rise to the term central powers, while Italy began to weigh the benefits of remaining with Germany and Austria in their Triple Alliance, constructed and in place virtually unchanged since 1882. This was especially true in 1905, when Britain sided at least nominally with France, and thus positioned itself against Italy. Italy could not reconcile itself within a power grouping that had Britain as its enemy, so its position in the Triple Alliance started to visibly wane. As we saw before, Germany responded to these turn of events by puffing up its chest and trying to swell its ranks as much as possible, on land and sea. The result of this was that Britain and Germany were engaged in a steady naval race, and would be until the war broke out in 1914. While on land, the solid bloc of the Austro-German alliance was surrounded by equally solid militaries in France and Russia. I remember asking myself if I was really sure that I wanted to do a nine-part special on World War I, but I knew that I'd never forgive myself if I let myself down in my favourite period in history. Now that we're on the third part, we are technically a third of the way through, but getting through the material should be easier. Before, I had to cover a lot of chopping and changing, especially when Britain and Germany were involved, but now the alliance system of Britain, France and Russia on one side call it whatever you will, it was still kind of an alliance, and Germany, Austria and Italy on the other will remain pretty much concrete until 1914, 
even while under the surface of these alliances, tensions and external plans still remain. My point is, if you were finding the bipolar diplomacy from the last two episodes confusing, this should be easier to digest for your brain. The essence of World War I's two armed camps had by 1906 been formed, so the story should be a simpler one. The Anglo-Russian Entente, the document which formed the final piece of the Triple Entente puzzle, was signed by both sides on August 31st, 1907. This seemed to mark the end of an era for Anglo-Russian relations, and was the one development the Kaiser managed to not see coming until it was too late. Signed in St. Petersburg, it negotiated the Anglo-Russian spheres of influence within Asia, and meant that the weakened Russia from its Japanese adventures would not have to worry about an expensive British rivalry, while for Britain, it meant that the worry of a Russian enemy in Asia, and as a threat to India, was over. As we saw in the last episode, this fundamental change in how Russia looked at Britain and vice versa was made possible only by Russia's deflating loss to Japan in the Russo-Japanese War, which led to the chain reactions of weakening the Franco-Russian Entente, strengthening Germany in the East, and making Russia and France more agreeable to an understanding with Britain, and in France's case, desperate for such an understanding. However, our good friend James Joel, in his book The Origins of the First World War, explains that the alliance system set in place was perhaps not as concrete or stable as historians have imagined. Quote, There were many differences within the alliances themselves, differences that led many to doubt whether the alliances would remain intact. French interests and ambitions in North Africa were never supported by Russia, which was unlikely to support France in a war against Italy, Germany or indeed Britain that began over Tunisia, Morocco or Egypt respectively. It was especially doubtful that France would fight to support Russia in Manchuria or Korea. The Triple Alliance sometimes appeared to be coming apart at the seams meanwhile. Italy could always be tempted to turn on Austria-Hungary if France offered her concessions. Austria had no interest in supporting Germany's world politique in Central or Southern Africa, in China or the Pacific. Some Germans argued that it was a mistake to support Austria in the Balkans, that it was instead preferable to restore good relations with Russia and thereby disrupt the Franco-Russian alliance. End quote. One should keep in mind that the Anglo-French Entente was not an alliance. Furthermore, even while the Russo-Japanese war was raging, the world situation and power balance seemed destined to change, and not in the direction we, with the benefit of hindsight, would have expected. So let's rewind a tiny bit. Russia and Austria in 1903 had agreed to uphold the status quo of the Balkans, fearing the effects of its disintegration and the subsequent scramble for land that would result. The agreement in October 1903 meant that the Austro-Russian rivalry in the Balkans was cooling, at least for the moment, and because of this, the greatest force against the former Three Emperors League had vanished. Could such an agreement be reconstructed? In 1903, there was no reason why Russia might feel compelled to formalise agreements with Austria to increase its own security in the Balkans, so that it could move in Asia without watching its back. Furthermore, if war broke out in Japan, which it did in early 1904, and France did not support its ally Russia, could the Franco-Russian Entente remain in place? Germany sought to spur this rationale on by conducting a commercial treaty with the Russians in July 1904, even while Britain and France treated, and while Japan fought Russia. I perhaps didn't emphasise just how inevitable war seemed when Russian vessels fired on British fishing vessels in the North Sea. The German plan, as I mentioned before, was to propose an alliance to Russia which it could use against Britain, while France would hopefully remain isolated and the Anglo-Japanese alliance would have real competition. The Tsar himself even responded positively to the German moves, which should shatter any illusions we have that the two armed camps were set in stone. He said, quote, Germany, Russia and France should at once unite upon an arrangement to abolish the Anglo-Japanese arrogance and insolence. This combination has often come to my mind. It will mean peace and rest for the world. It would have been a substantial alliance had the circumstances of history not prevented it. When Russia was shattered, first abroad by Japan and then at home by upheaval, its prestige dipped with it, and the German offer was withdrawn. While Russia retreated into a pathetic self-reflection and weak international policy, Germany became stronger than ever master of the East and West and militarily supreme in Europe. 
This left Britain very aware of how much its own policy would have to change. Its balance of power mentality would simply not allow such a strong Germany to face no opposition, and so the French calls for an alliance began to make more sense. Germany, empowered by its new position, began to embark on a new form of foreign policy which, as usual, was meant to portray it as a first-class power but which instead just left all around it scratching their heads. As per the terms of the Entente Cordiale, Britain had agreed to allow France a free hand in Morocco, should the country ever fall into chaos. Suddenly, Germany was making North Africa its business, and though it was perhaps no real shock that Germany was seeking to undermine France yet again, it was significant that Germany was trying to exert its own influence on North Africa. So why the change? As usual, it involves the characteristic failure on the part of the Germans to understand the character of their adversaries, and by that I mean... Germany had intervened in the French-African business because Chancellor von Bülow and Foreign Affairs Minister von Holstein had concluded that the best way to isolate Britain was to intimidate France out of its dealings with it. The flip-flopping continues. Just like Germany had tried to do and would continue trying to do with Britain, France was targeted at its most vulnerable spot, i.e. its African colonies. Bülow and Holstein believed that if they threatened France in this position, she would cave under pressure and bow to German demands. The Kaiser, although he had little desire to entangle himself in French Africa, mainly because he believed Africa kept French mines off Alsace and Lorraine, agreed to meet with the Sultan in Morocco, and he landed in Tangier on March 31st in brilliant ceremony, and promised to uphold Moroccan independence. William Carr, in his book A History of Germany, 1815-1990, to notes the motivations behind the German moves. Quote, in the past, Germany had raised no objection to French penetration in Morocco. Now, German agents began to intrigue in the country and advised the Sultan to resist French encroachments. Von Bülow took care to warn the Sultan that Germany could not afford to fight in Morocco, for a war never entered into his calculations in 1905. He realised that the French predominance in Morocco was inevitable in the long run. German pressure was only intended to warn France that Germany was not to be ignored and to show her that British support would be of little avail. In despair, the French would surely abandon the Entente and graviate Berlin. Or so the Germans hoped. End quote. However, James Joel notes that there was more at stake, not just French colonial interests, but her overall sovereignty. Quote, the point of the Moroccan crisis, however, was not Morocco, but the nature of the relationship between Germany and France. If the French were forced to give in to German demands in an area where France had a significant interest and great plans for the future, while Germany had few, it would make it plain that Germany was so much more powerful in Europe and that France could expand her empire overseas only with German consent. It would mean nothing that the French navy was more powerful than the German, that the French army in Africa was more powerful than the German. In the future, all that would really matter would be the ability of Germany to defeat France on the ground in Europe. The Moroccan crisis was tremendously important because it seemed likely to determine whether or not France was still capable of pursuing an independent foreign policy. End quote. Hence, why I take two historians' point on the event. It was pretty important as a stepping stone towards a more aggressive German foreign policy, which would grow to ferocious levels as we'll soon see. March 1905 is widely seen as the date Germany stopped reacting to foreign events, be they wars, diplomatic snubs, or colonial problems, and started creating some waves of their own. Thus, while few but its closest allies liked what Germany was doing for the next few years, there could be no denying that Europe revolved around it. From now on, everything Germany did or didn't do caused shockwaves. In France, the whole situation was causing immense division. Foreign Minister Theo de Classe had received word from British Foreign Secretary Lord Lansdowne that Britain was willing to morph the Entente into an alliance, but his colleagues were sceptical. Could Britain be trusted to act alongside it should Germany press the issue in Morocco and declare war? What Germany really wanted was a conference, in which it was hoped that they could acquire international support for an independent Morocco, and thus undermine France without having to actually raise a finger. But de Classe urged the French government to resist the German demands, to call their bluff and not approve an alliance, and if all else failed, to stall for time. De Classe also hoped Britain would lend its diplomatic support to France, loudly if necessary, and that this would discourage German moves for a conference. 
but Germany did not back down, and French Prime Minister Maurice Rouvier refused to allow the situation to escalate, and once the Germans found out about de Classe's schemes, they demanded his resignation, and the French cabinet, faced by a German pressure for which they were militarily unprepared, capitulated to the German demands. De Classe was out, and Germany had won a huge diplomatic victory. There would be a conference on Morocco after all. This only occurred after yet another humiliation for poor France though, as Prime Minister Rivier remained resistant to a conference and held on to the idea of private negotiation over Morocco, and Rivier then began to call up reservists. When von Bülow got word of this, he accelerated the tension, moving up his largest divisions to the railway stations for transport west later that night. French agents got wind of these developments, as von Bülow knew they would, and informed the French government that Germany was deadly serious. Rouvier's government would surely have feared a repeat of 1870, when German railways fired German soldiers into France faster than France could expel them, and the calls for a defusal of the situation was heeded. A deflated Rouvier agreed to a conference to take place in Algeciras on January 17, 1906. Germany was riding high going into the conference. Russia's dominance in Asia had been removed and she was a shadow of her former self, France had been thoroughly humiliated and made to look desperately fearful of Germany on the world stage, twice, while Britain appeared isolated by German diplomatic brilliance. However, the reality was not so rosy. Germany's representative Holstein discovered that despite its inception of the conference, Britain, Russia and France all vetoed its proposals with respect to the Moroccan issue, and Germany was left out in the cold. William Carr describes the very telling scene. Quote, the Moroccan adventure had ended disastrously for Germany. A lasting diplomatic victory eluded Bulo's grasp after initial successes. Whatever the Act of Algeciras, signed in April 1905, had said about Moroccan independence, the door in Morocco was now wide open for further French advances. The Anglo-French Entente, which von Bulo and Holstein had fondly believed they could shatter, was stronger than ever after its baptism of fire. Germany, not France, had been publicly humiliated by the revelation of her diplomatic isolation at the conference table. And whilst Russia stood by France at Algeciras, Italy's failure to support Germany spotlighted the weakness of the once mighty Triple Alliance. Few people in 1906 seriously believed that Germany was bent on the domination of Europe by force of arms. But there was much resentment of German brinkmanship, and of her veiled threats of war, and of her brash attempts to tip the balance of power in her favour. End quote. Italy's lack of commitment to the Triple Alliance is very telling here, but in secret, Italy had been approaching France for years, and the French, eager to break the power of the Triple Alliance wherever possible, came to an agreement with Italy as early as June 1902. This agreement had recognised the French claims to Morocco and the Italian claims to Libya, and promised future cooperation in colonial spheres. The big issue for Italy was Tunisia, especially after the shattering experience of Ethiopia, so the negotiations continued, while Italy endured ridicule and indignation from her Triple Alliance allies due to her transparency. It appeared obvious to von Bülow that Italy would not fight Britain under any circumstance, and he could not persuade the Italians to treat France in the same way as the Germans had done, i.e. as clear enemies. Italy was not willing to become a satellite state of Germany, as Austria was believed to have become around this time. In frustration, the German ambassador to Italy wrote to von Bülow in the weeks after the failure of the Algeciras conference in early 1906, quote, The pseudo-great power Italy is nothing but a deadweight, which our policy has to drag along behind it. End quote. 1906 was an important year for Europe. In the beginning, the Algeciras conference had illuminated Germany's aggressive new direction in foreign policy, and while France had bowed under her threats, it was Germany that ended up losing out as it alienated Britain for the last time. It was in many ways a wake-up call. Although the naval race was in its infancy here, it did exist in a developed enough state to cause alarm in London. Russia's relationship with Britain was cooling for the first time in over half a century, and British statesmen were beginning to think strategically in Europe. Russia would be approached in time, but the call of the day in early 1906 was closer military cooperation with France. Military advisers were exchanged on both sides, and plans for a war with Germany and Europe were thoroughly discussed, though the Entente still remained an Entente and not an alliance. Debate raged in the House of Commons as to the best course of action in Europe. 
Should Britain send over a large contingent of troops at once, or should Britain maintain a small but professional force ready to land strategically wherever it was needed? The British General Staff approved the first option, the British Admiralty approved the second. Further repercussions emerged from Algeciras, namely the German-held belief that Germany was being encircled in a Europe that was jealous of her progress and determined to hold her back. The Third Navy Law was passed in the Reichstag on the 5th of June 1906, and this contributed to the growing sentiment among German statesmen that Germany should not seek to diplomatically weave its way through Europe any longer, but that it should instead beef its military resources up and make use of this force in the form of threats. The German mood was further soured when the news came that the Franco-Russian Entente no longer included provisions for Britain as its enemy, which was the clearest signs to all involved that the Anglo-Russian and Anglo-French rivalry that Germany had depended on for so long had officially ended. Now the three would surely be working closer together, and the situation began to escalate. France continued to lend ginormous sums of money to Russia. The latest figure in 1906 was over 2 billion francs, while Britain moved the bulk of its Mediterranean fleet to the North Sea in mid-1906, a move which many German strategists believed was a step towards a preemptive strike against the infant German fleet nestled in the Baltic. 1906 was also the year that the face of the Anglo-German naval race changed and thereafter escalated. When Britain's dreadnought class of battleship burst onto the scene on October 5th, 1906, it represented a huge leap in naval technology. This was the greatest battleship the world had ever seen. Its guns, speed and armour were second to none, and it had the immediate effect of making everything else that floated obsolete. So important was this HMS Dreadnought that it became a catch-all term for ships that were its size and used its specifications, to the point that every country in Europe required its own class of Dreadnought, especially Germany. Normally, history podcasts would probably now take the time to run through all the different classes of Dreadnought, outline why it was so much more better than the other battleships that came before it, shock you with the costs involved, and then quote numerous sources to back it up. However, this is my history podcast, and I find navies almost as boring as military technology, so I'm going to skim over the finer details, though you should remember that the Dreadnought was not only the greatest vessel of its day, but it was also the issue that really lit the fuse on the Anglo-German naval race. If you thought the figures were crazy before, then the amount spent by both sides in modernising their fleets, trying to outbuild one another in ships, and the strain put on their respective dockyards would surely surprise you. From here on, it was a battle of the numbers for British and German navies, as both pushed their industry to the limit in order to churn out as many first-class dreadnoughts as possible for each financial year. But let's get back to the diplomacy, shall we? 1907 saw Britain and Russia treat on the same terms as Britain and France had done three years before. But the Anglo-Russian Entente promised very little in terms of a wider-range three-way alliance that would encircle Germany. Even though the three powers in question had no interest anymore in treating Germany as an ally, at least not for the moment, the idea that Russia, Britain and France would form a solid three-way bloc to counter the Triple Alliance was by no means inevitable. A new Russian foreign minister, A.P. Izvolsky, was on the scene, and he was determined to limit Russian commitments and put relations with all great powers on an equal footing. Izvolsky negotiated a series of settlements with Japan in Asia, Germany in the Baltic and Britain in Persia, the latter of which was covered in the Anglo-Russian Entente on August 31st, 1907. James Joll explains the terms of the agreement. Quote, the Anglo-Russian agreement was even less of an alliance than the Anglo-French Entente had been. The two powers agreed that Tibet should act as a neutral buffer between their empires, and that Russia should have no direct contact with Afghanistan. Thus, the British seemed to have achieved the security for their northwest frontier that they had long sought. Most difficult, and most important, was the agreement on Persia which created a Russian sphere of influence in the most populous and richer north, and a British sphere of influence in the south, bordering on Afghanistan and the Persian Gulf, while a neutral sphere in the centre was to separate the two. End quote. The Anglo-Russian agreement was not nearly as significant as we, or indeed I, have probably insinuated to you guys. It provided for no future military planning, it entitled neither side to special privileges, and it outlined no political or future diplomatic action. What it did was resolve the long-standing Asian rivalry between Russia and Britain, 
It also put Germany on edge, as it appeared her rivals in Russia and Britain were moving closer together by the year. But it was not an alliance directed against Germany. Foreign Minister Izvolsky would make sure of that, busied as he was with solving the problems of a Russia whose international confidence had slumped and his domestic policies needed a chance to properly mature at home following the 1905 revolutions. The point I'm getting at here is that the Central Powers versus the Triple Entente was by no means a sure thing in the years 1904 to 1907. Hindsight may tempt us into dividing the two camps neatly along perfect lines for the sake of convenience, but the reality was that in 1907 Russia did not feel fearful of Germany. Without Russia firmly on side, the Anglo-French agreement that had slowly become closer could not realistically hold Germany on land with the French army expected to take the brunt of the potential German attack, and with the British army smaller than any of the great powers. Britain thus focused on its naval plans, which saw developments in the dreadnought program which we saw, while France tried to tie itself militarily closer to Russia. France had always known Germany as its greatest foe. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Al Jazeera had confirmed this, but Russia had yet to feel the same sting that France had, and so its foreign minister, Izvolsky, continued on his course of a gentle, even-handed foreign policy. But another German attempt to achieve by gunboat diplomacy would provide that sting, and would thus make a three-way alliance so much easier to imagine. It all started with Austria-Hungary specifically its policy in the Balkans. Yes, folks, the Balkans are back with a vengeance. After momentarily slipping from the tip of everyone's tongue, the Balkans would dominate European dealings for the next few years. But for now, they were relatively quiet. That is, until Austria decided to up and annex Bosnia-Herzegovina. The reason behind this aggressive new direction in Austrian foreign policy? It had a new foreign minister, of course. Count Arenthal who decided that the best way to prove Austria's critics wrong was to develop a foreign policy that proved it still belonged on the world stage. Austria-Hungary was not out of the great powers. Arenthal was determined to prove that. What he really did, though, was increase the tension in an already tense area of Europe, and the subsequent outcry was reminiscent of the German creation of the Moroccan crisis in the years before which seemed to suggest that the Central Powers were willing to make trouble, so long as that trouble made a lot of suggestive noise. The annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina on October 6, 1908, placed Russian Foreign Minister Izvolsky in a tough position. In the weeks before, he had met the Austrian Foreign Minister Auenthal, and had been informed of the Austrian intention to annex Bosnia-Herzegovina. Although Izvolsky may have been miffed at the move, he had seen it as an opportunity for Russia. Izvolsky agreed to cooperate with Austrian demands if Austria helped negotiate an opening of the Dardanelles for them. Austrian Foreign Minister Arenthal agreed to the request and also planned to use the opportunity to develop the Austrian navy to the point that it could dominate the Adriatic Sea and pressure Serbia, who had major interests in Bosnia-Herzegovina, to back down. Our good friend James Jahl explains what happened next. Quote, 
If the bargain had worked, Austro-Russian cooperation in the Balkans might have been maintained, but the Russian government refused to support Izvolsky, partly because public opinion, which was now more important under the new constitutional process, would be outraged by the abandonment of Slav brothers to Germanic rule. End quote. The weight of public opinion meant that Izvolsky had to go back on his original plan for Austro-Russian cooperation, despite the Russian unwillingness to go to war over the issue. Austria, determined to prove herself, was ready to go to war with Russia over the fate of Bosnia-Herzegovina and enjoyed the support of Germany, while Russia could not get a firm answer from Britain or France. In the face of such military might, Russia backed down, as France had done in Morocco, and Russia's weakness was laid clearly on the table. Germany's security depended on Austrian support in Europe, so her vocal approval of Austrian policy was always inevitable. Russia's ally in France, however, was unwilling to act, and the third wheel of the agreement in Britain was equally non-committal. German Chancellor von Bülow captured the necessity surrounding the alliance with Austria. Quote, Our position would indeed be dangerous if Austria lost confidence in us and turned away. On eastern questions, above all, we cannot place ourselves in opposition to Austria, who has nearer and greater interests in the Balkan Peninsula than ourselves. A refusal or grudging attitude in this question of the annexation would not be forgiven, and in the present time we must be careful to retain in Austria a true partner. End quote. Austria was Germany's only concrete ally in the world, but once again, the consequences of such a foreign policy would haunt its author. In Russia, the act was seen as a criminal one, and the hope that an Austro-Russian partnership could pacify the Balkans was dashed in this moment. From this date on, the Balkans really starts to get out of control. The Ottoman Empire reminded Europe that it still had a pulse by protesting the annexation too, along with France and Britain. Britain and France proposed a conference, but the details of it were never agreed upon, so that eventually communication over the event was reduced to notes sent through the European capitals. By bluntly threatening war, the Austro-German camp got their wish again. Russia did back down, and though the crisis dragged on into March 1909, she could stall no longer and had to face humiliation. For the second time, a power on the outside of the Triple Alliance had tasted bitter diplomatic embarrassment and defeat. It was time for payback. Russian statesmen ingratiated themselves towards France like never before, while France was only too willing to receive the Russian dignitaries with a degree of sympathy and respect. After all, she knew how it felt. If the noose around the Central Powers had been closing before, then by mid-1909, it was drawn shut. The Bosnian crisis had a number of other effects too. In Serbia, it convinced many that the state's only hope lay in dependence on Russia to secure its sovereignty, since Austria seemed altogether determined to undermine it. In Austria, the proof had apparently arrived that an aggressive foreign policy would reap rich rewards for it, and thus the militarism of the state expanded into its navy where new ideas about starving Serbia through naval blockade were pushed enthusiastically through. Finally, though, Russian statesmen concluded that the Austro-German alliance posed a direct threat to their country's sovereignty, and they endeavoured to strengthen their ties with Serbia, initialise a new battleship construction programme, and formalise mobilisation plans for the future. Although 1909 marked another victory for the Central Powers then, it also marked the end of illusion on the part of Russia. The new Russian foreign minister, S.D. Sazanov, made it his goal to undermine the Austro-German alliance. Sazanov promised Russia would drop its objections towards German moves in Turkey and Persia if Germany promised she would not support any form of Austrian aggression in the Balkans. But von Bülow had yet to understand the ramifications of the Bosnian crisis. As far as he was concerned, it had proven France unwilling as a Russian ally and Britain unwilling through its entente to act on behalf of Russia, and thus von Bülow still believed Russia to be isolated, just like France. Von Bülow could thus believe that the unfolding crises in the Balkans did not hold such explosively dangerous consequences as they did, because of Russia's apparent loneliness on the world stage. The reality, though, was that the Bosnian crisis had closed the door on the last attempts at reconciling Austria, Germany and Russia together as one unit. Since 1871, it had been Bismarck's goal to have Russia on side, but 40 years later, such an alliance was impossible. Germany had chosen Austria, Russia had chosen France, and because of the continuing belligerence present in the Austro-German tone, reconciliation proved more and more difficult. 
The next few years would see the wedge between the Austro-German alliance and Russia grow to a chasm, over which the entire piece of Europe appeared to dangle. As I said before, because the Bosnian crisis ended the Austro-Russian cooperation, the Balkans began to fall apart. The ethnic tensions, the young former Ottoman states eager to prove themselves on the world stage, and the lack of policing that used to be present meant that the situation began to heat up very, very fast. In what would become something of a trend for the next few years, many things are going to be happening all at once. In 1909, the British public had demanded that Britain up its naval construction programme so that it would keep pace with Germany, who, despite its slow start in the dreadnought race, had done very well to first match and then seek to better British naval production for the years planned ahead in 1910 and 11. When German naval estimates were leaked to the British Admiralty, the First Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Tweedmouth, received a letter from the Kaiser in which Wilhelm II expressed his failure to understand how Germany building a navy was any concern to Britain, and how Britain should cut its naval estimates and expenditure, because Germany was of no threat to her. The Kaiser's letter was a classic German display of naivety. So long as Germany continued to build ships and tried to keep pace with Britain, it was always going to clash with her. Britain's forte was its naval power. Its army was small and designed for colonial maintenance, so Britain depended on its navy. The British public had been raised with the belief that their navy was the greatest in the world, and indeed it was. So many were understandably vexed when it emerged Germany was trying to challenge that supremacy. It had been seen in Russia, and before that in France, that Britain needed its navy to remain at the top of the international food chain, and for reasons of international security, British statesmen could not afford to let their naval supremacy slip. It was all they really had to defend themselves. Three things were occurring simultaneously at this time. The first was the aforementioned Balkan rivalries, which would descend into war in 1911, and the second was this naval rivalry that would remain at the forefront of the Anglo-German rivalry for the remainder of the peace. The third was Morocco. But Zach, you already talked about Morocco. Yes, I did, but that was the Algeciras Conference and the preceding German attempts to exert its influence in French affairs, mainly occurring 1905 to 1906. The crisis I'm talking about now is the Agadir Crisis, named after the port which the German cruiser Panther was sent to in southwest Morocco on July 1, 1911, just after Germany began making noise about French moves in Morocco yet again. So we're back in Morocco again. France was likely getting sick of German intervention yet again in their African affairs, having conducted a treaty with Germany in 1909 that recognised France's special political interests in Morocco in exchange for promises that German economic interests would not be damaged. But that treaty was proven to be a lot of hot air, when, in April 1911, rebellion broke out in Fez, the capital of Morocco, against the Sultan. France then sent a pro-Sultan force of 20,000 into Morocco to preserve its interests. The situation had escalated very fast, and nobody expected Germany to send a vessel to the technically French-owned port. France and Spain had special interests in the region, while Britain really needed Morocco to be stable for the sake of its naval base in the Gibraltar Straits. Thus Britain once again felt threatened by another German attempt to escalate the situation. The British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, had originally urged France to refrain from sending troops to Morocco, but relented once it became obvious Germany wished to escalate the situation in Morocco yet again. Somehow, German Grand Admiral Tirpitz still believed Britain could be separated from France if she was strongly pushed. The plan was to repeat the humiliation of France that had occurred in the previous Moroccan crisis. But instead of France backing down, it was Germany who eventually relented and agreed to sign the Treaty of Fez on March 30, 1912. The treaty established Morocco as a French protectorate. There could no longer be any disputing French claims to the region, while Germany was granted some far-off tropical regions of the Congo as compensation. So all was well then, right? Germany got some land in return for accepting French hegemony over Morocco. Everyone wins, right? Well, actually, no. The Second Moroccan Crisis was the final straw for Britain, now convinced that German naval policy was the single biggest threat to her supremacy, and that Germany herself was Britain's most dangerous rival in the world. And so, she tied herself closer still to France. An Anglo-French agreement was signed during the crisis, in which Britain agreed to protect the French coast from German naval attack. A huge step. Also striking was Britain's stance against Germany, 
Sure, Britain had stood with France in the preceding Moroccan crisis of 1905 to 1906, but Britain's severe tone this time was the clearest sign to Tirpitz that his policy of intimidating Britain into an Anglo-German alliance that favoured Germany was a complete impossibility. At this point, two characters emerged explosively on the British political scene, having worked influentially in the background up to now. The first was Winston Churchill, whose career began in the Admiralty and which reached its peak at this early stage. Churchill was made First Lord of the Admiralty at this time, and he immediately set about changing British naval strategy by revolutionarily advocating British naval vessels change their fuel type from coal to oil. This opened up a whole new range of possibilities and problems for Britain. It meant that our ships would not have to wait at certain locations to coal, and could therefore be more mobile and efficient, but it also meant that Britain now required a steady, reliable oil supply. Thus the Middle East increased in its importance to Britain. The second character to emerge was David Lloyd George, this stage serving as Chancellor of the Exchequer, and whose speech in the House of Commons on July 21, 1911, really set the tone for British policy. He said, after emphasising the importance of dealing peacefully with other nations, quote, But I am bound to say this, that I believe it is essential in the highest interests, not merely of this country but of the world, that Britain should at all hazards maintain her place and her prestige amongst the great powers of the world. Her potent influence has many a time been in the past, and yet may be in the future, invaluable to the cause of human liberty. It has more than once in the past redeemed continental nations, who are sometimes too apt to forget that service, and even from national extinction. I would make great sacrifices to preserve peace. I conceive that nothing would justify a disturbance of international goodwill except questions of the greatest national moment. But if a situation was to be forced upon us which peace could only be preserved by the surrender of the great and beneficent position Britain has won by centuries of heroism and achievement, by allowing Britain to be treated where her interests were vitally affected, as if she were of no account in the cabinet of nations, then I say emphatically that peace at that price would be a humiliation intolerable for a great country like ours to endure. End quote. The speech had the double effect of galvanising British public opinion against the central powers and also alarming the Kaiser in Berlin. Overnight, Lloyd George became something of a sensation, and the Kaiser, who had expected Britain to keep out of the quarrel he had created with France, was aghast that Britain appeared to be taking the same line with Germany that Germany had taken with France and Russia before, i.e. Britain was making barely veiled threats, and seemed perfectly willing to back up those threats with war. Wilhelm was not prepared for this reaction. He flew into a rage, because he knew his gamble had failed, and because it meant Germany would have to back down. The event had been a complete failure for the aggressive German policy. However, if one looks at the other side of the coin, could Germany's actions be justified? Initially, Britain was not happy with French decisions to occupy Fez, because to Britain, this meant that French imperialists were in influential positions that could be dangerous for the peace. The German foreign minister, Alfred von Keiteren Wachter, much like von Bülow before him, did believe that Morocco was bound to fall to France at some stage, but upheld that, due to rules of international law, France could simply not take what it wanted, whatever the crisis in Morocco was. It seemed too convenient to Germany that France was required to send troops into Fez, troops that would guarantee its supremacy there. So Foreign Minister Keiterden Wachter requested Germany receive compensation for French moves. The mistake was sending in the German ship to the port of Agadir before the negotiations had really had a chance to produce anything, because this turned British opinion against Germany and made it forget that it had originally protested the French move in the first place while it also made Germany look like it was trying to use gunboat diplomacy again, which it basically was. The Kaiser hoped that France would be more agreeable to treat favourably with Germany if Germany had a giant boat on the coast of one of its colonies. But the whole thing backfired as we saw. One thing led to another, and before the end nobody could really remember why they were there at all. All that was certain was that Germany had dug itself a deeper hole. She had perhaps had some justification in the beginning, but her actions halfway through had once again portrayed her in a negative light, maybe because of the international inexperience of her statesmen, but also because of the very real aggression that was ever present in German foreign policy. With Morocco peaceful again at last, let's jump back into the Balkans, circa 1911. 
During this time, the Italians were fighting the Ottomans and the Italo-Turkish War, which lasted from September 1911 to October 1912. The war itself only served the purpose of enabling Italy to annex Libya from Turkey's dying empire, while also proving a good example to those Balkan states who still felt bitter towards the Ottomans of how to fight Turkey and win. Once the Italo-Turkish War ended in October 1912, the First Balkan War erupted soon after, literally days after, but had been ongoing unofficially since April 1912, when Albania had risen in revolution against Turkey. Serbia's King Peter I had stated that he was declaring war against Turkey because Turkey's treatment of Albania had to be punished. But as usual, the truth was far from view. Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece and Montenegro had formed the Balkan League in early 1912 to plan a war of conquest against the Ottoman Balkan territories, and no matter what the situation in Albania was, war in the Balkans against the Ottoman possessions there was always going to happen. Once Italy got what it wanted in the Treaty of Uchi in October 18th, Ottoman soldiers were drafted from as far away as Ankara to help hold the Balkan provinces still owned by Turkey. But Ottoman moves were to no avail. The Balkan League ravaged the disadvantaged Ottoman positions, tearing the heart out of the Ottoman resolve and will to fight on. The Treaty of London on May 30th, 1913 established a new order in Europe, with the Ottoman Empire definitely absent from the Balkans, the original fears of the great powers had been realised. Did these new Balkan states have it in themselves to hold the various ethnicities together, or would their subsequent conduct prove Europe's belief right, i.e. that it took a great power to maintain peace in the Balkans? Certainly, the Balkan League wasted no time getting what it wanted, once it had become clear that Austria and Russia were not jointly interested anymore in upholding its status quo. The Balkan states had sought to do what everyone else in Europe had sought to do for centuries beforehand, expand. But it was the fact that the Balkans was now wholly owned by Balkan states, and that it was believed to be now more unstable than ever, that was the most worrying factor of this expansion to all involved. Diplomacy was running rampant at this time. Britain had orchestrated Greek involvement in the conflict so as to hopefully limit Slavic and thus Russian influence. Russia had approved of the actions of the Balkan League, though it had little idea of the motives of Bulgaria, which would soon become explosively apparent. France stood by to aid Russia should the Balkan League require Russia's military support, though it failed to convince Britain of the validity of a war in the Balkans. Austria was mindful of its nationalistic problems, and thus viewed the Balkan League as a dangerous rival operating in its sphere of influence. In particular, Serbia was viewed with disdain, as it was seen as a Russian puppet state. Germany at this stage tried to court Bulgaria into the Triple Alliance, and believed that the bigger this Bulgaria was, the better this was for Germany. But pretty much everyone's plans went pear-shaped when Bulgaria, unhappy with its gains after the First Balkan War, declared war on Serbia and Greece, thus starting the Second Balkan War, and making everyone facepalm in despair. Hold on to your hats, folks, because everything moves pretty fast here. When Bulgaria declared war on Greece and Serbia on June 16, 1913, it started a series of chain reactions that very nearly led to a worldwide war. Russia and Austria scrambled to make the most of the situation, while Romania declared war on Bulgaria and invaded it from the rear, as Bulgaria began to encounter troubles against the Greco-Serb armies. Then the Ottoman Empire invaded back into Bulgaria from the south, in an attempt to rectify its first Balkan War losses. The result was the collapse of Bulgaria, facing war on four fronts, and it signed the peace treaties of Bucharest and Constantinople on August 10th and September 29th, 1913, respectively. The war's legacy was considerable, as James Joll explains, quote, The Balkan Wars left a dangerous legacy in the Balkans. The victors, now bigger and more powerful, remained dissatisfied nonetheless. Serbia, which had doubled in size, was still landlocked and made plain its sympathy with the Serbs of Austria-Hungary, whom it regarded as oppressed brethren. Greece, which had expanded to take in almost all territories where Greek was the language of the majority, looked beyond her frontiers to a greater Greece, that included Constantinople and parts of Asia Minor. Austria and Turkey had good reason to believe that dangers lay ahead, and Bulgaria, not surprisingly, was so embittered by the disasters of the previous year, she had lost 25,000 men and had been brought to the verge of revolution, that she would eagerly grasp any opportunity that offered her a chance to reverse the outcome of 1913. 
end quote. Russia had lost Bulgaria to the Austrian sphere of influence, and it thus now focused on Serbia with all its resources, meaning greater Serb rivalry with Austria, because Austria's Balkan competition with Serbia heated up as Serbia grew. This enabled Serbia to feel bolder in its foreign policy, and also continued to focus its public and state attention on Bosnia-Herzegovina, where a Serb minority resided. Germany had been proven more interested than before in supporting Austria's Balkan policies, and German diplomats had drawn Turkey closer to the Triple Alliance fold by training their soldiers and basing German generals in Constantinople, a move which aroused deep fears in a strategically-minded Russia. Britain and France had shuddered at the speed with which Europe nearly went to war over nothing, and along with Italy, breathed a sigh of relief, while also beefing up their militaries and walking with an increasingly pronounced strut. The years 1911 to 1913 had shown Europe that it did not take much effort or time for the situation to escalate and change, and yet nothing was done. The continued march towards gathering as much military force as possible was not halted. It was increased. Surely Europe could see the direction that all this posturing and all this stockpiling was going in. Surely cooler minds would step in and voice concerns over the necessity of so many soldiers near such sensitive places. Surely a conference would be called in which an international order would be established. Surely everyone would do everything in their power to prevent war on a scale that would kill millions and sink nations into the ground? The next year would illuminate just how costly the years of alienation, naivety and militarism had become. Because at this stage, every act was adding power to the enormous charge sitting underneath the very long peace. And as the charge got bigger, and as those that contributed to it watched it grow, a certain morbid curiosity emerged, with the question, how bad would it be to simply light the fuse, and send the world into a direction it had seemingly begged to go all along. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. Next time, we'll be looking at the year it all collapsed. 1914, and we'll cover the July crisis and the spin-off events that somehow justified plunging the world into a self-inflicted agony four years long in duration. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.